there's probably a page in your Bible that doesn't get in a lot of use. Genesis chapter 38, if you want to find that very first book of the Bible, chapter 38. Genesis 38 is the most overlooked, skipped over chapter in the Bible. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, first of all, Judah and his sons are just so very wicked. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. It just spells it out the way it is. And second of all, uh, and I just want to give you a warning on this, uh, the sexual indiscretions that are described in this chapter, I mean, this it's, it's just right out there. I, I'm giving this to you as a warning, okay? If you've got your kids by you or whatever, uh, th- we're going to go through this chapter. There's a reason why this is skipped over. And the, another reason why this is so skipped over is that we want and so bad and hope so much that the patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel, that their original leaders would have been so much better. And yet that's not what we find. And yet I think that if you skip over Genesis 38, you are going to miss a critical piece of evidence to answer the question, can God really work his good through a people who are really so bad? I mean, could God do it for a people that have a wayward, wicked history, who have, who have been corrupt, who are immoral, could God really do his work in a people like that? I mean, does the presence of evil thwart the will and the intention of God? Can things get so bad in our country, in our world, where it's like God's like, ugh, I'm stuck. I cannot forward my plan. Things have gotten too bad and too evil. You know, I can just tell you that um, that's a question I've asked myself. Could God use a a person like me? First 18 years of my life, really could care less about God. Out doing my own program. Living for me. Pretty open about that. I'd imagine that uh, you, you've asked yourself that question. Could could God use me, especially in light of of some of the sin that I've engaged in? Maybe, uh, Maybe just your attitudes or maybe it's our approach to life or... Maybe there are just certain actions that we have engaged in. It could be from a wide variety of things. Maybe, maybe you've left your spouse. Maybe you uh, abandoned your children. Maybe, uh, maybe you had an abortion. Maybe even more than one. It's completely over. Could God ever use you? Uh, perhaps uh, you've been emotionally abusive. Maybe you've got a felony. Um, Maybe uh, your history is pretty corrupt. Maybe you have a, a sordid moral history. You, of course, have tried to keep very hidden from everybody else, but you know all about it. Uh, perhaps uh, you have a secret, you think a almost hidden life of lust and pornography, and, you're, and you've asked that question, could, could God ever use me in light of the sin that I've known in my life? Can God really work his good through a people who are so bad? Well, chapter 38 is critical in answering that question that we all have. And it doesn't waste a lot of time to show just how low you can go. Genesis chapter 38 is going to just take us in about a 20-year period, capsulized in just a few strokes of the pen, and we're going to see just how low you can go. And it all gets started here with Judah. And it came about that time 
that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. What we're going to do is remember Judah. Remember, could you, could you forget Judah from last week? That fine, upstanding leader of his brothers? He was the guy who had the great idea that well, we should kill Joseph, but uh, then, you know, wait, 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 wait. Remember, he's our flesh and blood. We don't want to kill him, right? Because we could make some money off of him. <laughs> Better yet, right? And so they pulled him out of that pit, Joseph out of that pit. They threw him in there and they sold him into slavery and watched their brother get hauled off to Egypt. And, you know, they made a, a lot of money on this boy. Twenty shekels. And they did it. You know whose idea that was? And all the brothers joined in with him. That's Judah. Judah is a calloused, greedy character. He has no thought of God or of godliness. He is not concerned with the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, his descendants. He is just out there doing life on his own. And notice it says it came about that time that Judah, he departed from his brothers. He is leaving God's promised family, the one that family that has the promise of given to Abraham, residing in them. And he's just I'm walking away and he is going to go to a, a certain Adulamite whose name is Hira. He is going to go to a Canaanite. Now, just to refresh your memory, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God gives this great promise to Abraham of a land, of a blessing and of a nation, he says, I'm going to give you the land of the Canaanites because I'm bringing judgment upon them and their land is going to be yours. The Canaanites are the enemy. But Judah doesn't care. In fact, in fact, he starts fraternizing with the enemy himself. He actually finds a friend by the name of Hira to go and hang out with. And what, what's happening to Jacob's family, it is slowly getting torn apart. I mean, think about it. Remember Simeon and Levi? Those are the guys that took revenge uh, for that, the rape of their sister Dinah. And they went to Shechem and they killed all the males and they totally destroyed their village and took off with all their stuff. And then there was, of course, Reuben. And Reuben was the guy who he actually had an immoral sexual relationship with one of his dad's wives. And then, of course, there is Joseph and they sold him into slavery. He's gone. And now Judah, Judah just voluntarily leaves. I'm you know what? I'm taking off. I'm going to go to this village out here in the northwest of Hebron. I'm going to go hang out there. And he walks away from his father and his family. And he finds a certain guy by the name of Hira. Uh, you want to note something here about your friends. Okay? There's, there's different kinds of people and like friends you can have. There's, there's some friends that say, hey, this is a sin. We shouldn't do that. And there's other friends that say, hey, this is a sin. Let's do it twice. Hira seems to be of the second. He is, he is one that seems to have influence on Judah's life. Perhaps he was the guy that instigated the whole thought of, hey, we're not so bad. Come on, man, just hang out with us. We're cool. Life is better. And if you remember anything you know about Canaanite religion, they prided themselves in the worship of idols, and especially they, the idea of having cultic prostitution was a part of their worship. It appealed directly to the flesh of man. You can see it in every form of satanic religion. It appeals to the flesh of man. And so, quote-unquote, sacred prostitution was a part of their worship. And he's like, hey, I don't know what your God's doing for you, but look at what we've got over here. And he convinces him. 
You know, you want to be real careful with your friends. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And if you don't have good morals, you don't have a sense of bearing, bad company is just going to lead you into further corruption. At every stage of the game, when you're in school, junior high, high school, college, young adult, middle age, senior years, hey, you make sure you've got some strong friends that are going in the right direction. Because I can assure you, if you're not have, you don't have a strong walk with God, their influence is going to be upon your life and it'll take you places that you never wanted to go. In fact, uh, Judah seems to be like a rudderless ship and he's going to be navigating some pretty dangerous waters and he is a shipwreck waiting to happen. Well, look what happens here. So verse 2, so Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua and he took her and went into her. Now, Judah, visual, he sees a Canaanite gal. This woman is never mentioned. All we know is that her dad's name was Shua. He sees her and he took her. Now, this would be the language of, the, of, of getting married, but the fact that her name is never mentioned and it just seems so crass, it is all probably about lust for Judah. He sees a Canaanite gal. He finds her attractive. He sees her. He wants her. He takes her. And it says that he took her and he went into her. And what is God going to do with this relationship now that Judah has married off even with the enemy, the Canaanites? Verse 3. So she conceived and bore a son and he named him Ur. And then, verse 4, she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And then she bore still another son and she named him Shelah. And it was at Kezib that she bore him. All of a sudden, the story just picks up. And now he's not only married, but he has now three children. And that final one, you see that Sheila, born in Kezib, uh, that word in Hebrew means city or town of lies. Obviously, the Chamber of Commerce went into a lot of thought about how we're going to name our town. Let's see, what is something that we could really just, you know, embodies us and kind of captures the essence of us? Let's go with the town of lies, all right? And so we've got Kezeb. And so Sheila is born in Kezeb. Now, now we see this, this family. It's multiplying. It's developing. And in verse 6, now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. He finds a wife. Tamar means palm, speaking of an enduring beauty. She was obviously a, a beautiful woman. And since Judah seems to be all operating on what he can see on the outside, he's like, all right, I'm going to take you, Tamar, and you're going to be my son's wife, Ur. But Ur seems to be kind of the same stripe as dad, only maybe uh, multiplied. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. You see that? That first son of Judah is so wicked. This is the first time in all of Scripture that God himself, Yahweh, just steps in and takes a person's life. Do you find that troubling? Do you? I hope you do because it's meant to trouble you. 
it's meant to alert you and awaken you the fact that God is a God not to be trifled with. Sometimes people have these kind of like fairy tale imaginations of, of God. And they, they just kind of seem placid and kind of floating and rather ethereal, like he's wearing some sort of like lemon yellow chiffon shirt, purple tights, hanging out, listening to Gaither music all day and just simply just unconcerned with what's going on around him. That is not God. He is colossal. He is immense. He does what is right and he wants what is right. And in the case of this boy, Ur, he's so wicked, God actually kills him. And so now we have a a situation. We have a situation where Tamar is married to Ur, but now Ur dead. She's a widow. So uh, verse seven, we find that Yahweh, God, takes this boy's life. And verse eight, then Judas said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, let me just tell you what is going on here. Here we have uh, what is referred to as the leveret marriage. And this was the custom of the Hittites, the Canaanites, and later actually became adopted and encoded in the law. And the idea is this, that if you were married, okay, and, and the, the husband dies, his brother has the responsibility of marrying this woman, okay, the widow, and actually having a, having a relationship with her where she can conceive and bear a child, hopefully a son, that can continue the family line of the deceased brother. Remember when we went through the book of Ruth and we saw that in clear detail? Okay, that was a major emphasis of chapter 3. This gets started, this is all the way back in Canaanite culture. This was the law of the land. This was the social custom. Now, I know, and I can, I can see it in some of you ladies' faces, you're like, oh my goodness, I can marry my brother-in-law. Oh! I just can't imagine anything worse. Okay, of course, you're not going to ever say that, but you don't have to think about that, because guess what? That is not the custom, nor the law of the land. But it was in that time. And so... Judah, aware of it, he says, all right, you got to marry Tamar. All right. And so he says, go into your brother's wife, perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, once Tamar would bear a child, that child would not be Onan's. No, it would be considered his brother Ur's first child. That child being the firstborn in that family he come from uh, coming down here from Judah, he would actually receive the double blessing and he would get double the inheritance because he's Ur's firstborn and he would actually pl- come into the place of where Ur was. He would receive the double blessing of everything in Judah's estate. Well, Onan's like, that's a terrible deal. OK, I don't want that. I don't have anything to do with that. But he, he hears his dad and, and verse nine. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. He's totally selfish. It's, this wouldn't be mine. This wouldn't be my kid. This wouldn't be my stuff. I just have to do this because my brother died. And so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Now, we don't have to get into all the indelicacies of what is taking place here. But he is, in essence... He just actually just abuses his wife that he has to marry because he knows he's supposed to give a child to her. But you know what? He wants nothing of the sort. He is completely selfish. 
And this wasn't just kind of a one-time deal. The actual construction of the sentence tells us this was his pattern. It's complete evil and wickedness. In verse 10, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, of Yahweh. And so he took his life also. What he was doing was clearly evil. And you need to know something about God. He sees it and he saw it all. In fact, not only does he see it all, he knows the intention of your heart. He knows what's going on here. He's knows what's going on here. He knows your attitudes and your actions. He knows what drives you. And God sees this wickedness. It continues. And finally, God says, enough, and you're done. This is pretty sobering and pretty tough stuff. He takes his life. You know, we love to emphasize that God is a God of love, and rightfully so. He is. He is merciful and gracious, gracious beyond belief. But he is always, always a God of justice. Just remember, God is just. We hardly even talk about this. We kind of like to think that, well, you know, God's kind of suspended his justice and we can just do whatever we want. No, he's a God to be revered and feared, as well as a God who's to be loved and we can know personally. And God is merciful, yes, but he always reserves the right that he can at any time judge wickedness. And he will. Sometimes there are lives that are just cut short. We've seen two. But you need to know this. God is upholding justice in the universe. In fact, if you are not trusting in his savior, his son, who actually came and paid the full wrath of God's justice, then in eternity, when you die, whether that be tomorrow or 10 days from now or 10 years or 100 years from now, when you die, you will face God's justice if you've never trusted his son. He is a God of complete justice. He judges correctly. And in the case of this wickedness, finally, he just said, enough is enough. Your time is up. Now, you're thinking like, maybe that's another reason why they don't cover Genesis 3.8. This is just kind of a one-time deal. God kills these evil boys. Actually, uh, there's lots of examples in Scripture where God just says, enough. Like in um, number 16, you ever heard of a guy named Korah? He was a Levite. And he decides that he's just going to lead a rebellion against God's anointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. And so he does, and he rallies all these guys, about 250 of them. They're standing in front of the tabernacle, right? Okay, we're going to take over, right? And God just says, you know, I think we're done. He opens up the earth, and there they go, and all their junk, right? And he judges them. Or if you say, like, whoa, I'm glad that's in the Old Testament. And thank the Lord for Jesus, and we never have that God would actually judge us and end our life prematurely. Hmm. If you read the early history of the church, Acts chapter 5, you've got this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they just see, wow, isn't that cool? Like everybody's giving, they, they sell property, and they give it all to the church for the furthering of God's kingdom work. And they're like, they saw a guy like Barnabas do that. I'm like, whoa, everything Barnabas is really a cool guy. We could be like him. So we're going to sell off our land, but you know what? We got a little deal. We can have our cake and eat it too. We will make it look like we're giving it all to the church, right? But we're going to hold back some here so we can have a pretty decent retirement on our side here, you know? But we'll get all the attention. We'll have all the money. It'll be perfect. Well, 
You just read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. They do it. They lie to the Holy Spirit. God calls them on it. And you know what? Both of them die. They're members of the church. This is not a salvation issue. They, don't, they haven't lost their salvation or they, like, they never had it and that's what happened here. No. I believe they fully knew Christ and they were genuinely saved. They just failed to treat God as holy. He judges them. Or if you want another sober example, New Testament, communion in Corinth. Must have been wild. Corinth was a wild, wild place. These people came to Christ, but they had some baggage, so to speak. Uh, Their communion service, which was focused and dedicated on thinking and reflecting and worshiping God, remembering the death of Christ. Well, they kind of took things out of hand. They turned it for a time of of greed and gluttony, and they were getting drunk at communion. As hard as that is to imagine, they were doing that. And furthermore, they were causing division. They have those who have and those who have not. And they made these separations. And you know what? This is what it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge his body rightly. This is just some sort of little flippant little, flip little exercise. Take a little cracker, drink a little juice. Can't wait to get home and watch football. No, this is all about the holiness of God and thinking of his great love and sacrifice for you. And so he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, a euphemism for death. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So even in the early church in Corinth, you see this where there is a judgment that takes place. Not that these people lost their salvation. They failed to treat God as holy. And he gives this as a warning. You know, when that happened with Ananias and Sapphira, you know, there was a great fear that went throughout the entire church and everyone who heard. He is a God to be revered and feared. Remember the Chronicles of Narnia? There's a, one, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis wrote it. And uh, there's just this really interesting scene where the beavers, these beavers talk, if you read the book. Okay, you hang with me. The beavers can talk, right? And they have the children there, and, they're, and the beavers are explaining to them who Aslan is. And uh, they, they find out that he's, he's not a, a man, but he's a lion. And uh, so they're trying to figure it out, like, well, is he safe? In fact, you know, Lucy kind of asked that question, like, well, well then, he, then he isn't safe? Oh, and, and Mr. Mr. Beaver goes, safe? Haven't you been listening to what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. I tell you, he's the king. And that lion, Aslan, represents Christ. And God, he's not safe like he doesn't care what you do. He takes sin seriously. But he's good. He is God. And so we find, and as we come back to Genesis 38 here, God saw this wickedness, he judged it. Well, verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, can you imagine what this would have looked like? He goes, I got an idea now. Uh, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son, Shelah, grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. To be a widow 
was to have no legal, economic, or social status. Um, you were, we were really in a position where you could be completely taken disadvantage of. And what, what Judah is doing here is, is just so in keeping with Judah. It's completely wrong. When, when Tamar was married, there was a dowry that came. There were funds that came with her. Could, wealth could have been in property, could have been in coinage, whatever. But there was funds that came with her, this dowry, that was meant to care for her in such an event like this where she would be destitute. But Judah seems to just like, well, I'm going to keep that dowry. And you know what? Why don't you go and spend some time with your folks and get out of here? And so he sends her on her way as a widow. OK. And he kind of like promises or tells her, you know, OK, well, Sheila, he's too uh, he's too young for you. But when he grows up, OK, you know, well, you know, you can kind of have him like your brothers. But but notice what it says. He's thinking, you know, he's thinking this. I'm afraid that he, too, may die like his brothers. I mean, what he's thinking is this. This girl is bad for my boys. Okay, that's what he's thinking. He never considers that his boys, like him, are so very wicked. So bad that God just said, you know what, I'm going to take them. Well, he never considers that. He does what is breaking all social protocol. But, you know, it doesn't seem like he is... Uh, really overly concerned with social propriety at this point. He sends her off. She remains a widow with the idea that, you know, when Sheila grows up, kind of an undetermined time, uh, you know, you can kind of marry him and we'll kind of carry on this family thing. Well, some time passes. In fact, verse 12, now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. Ooh. So now Judah's wife has died. Boys have died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Hmm, what's going to happen here? So what takes place here is now Judah's wife has died. He's got one boy left. If, if Judah never remarries, uh, then his line is going to be carried through Sheila. But Sheila's got to be married to Tamar. Tamar leads to death to his boys. And he's just like, I'm holding out. I'm holding out. All the while, Tamar is wearing her widow's garment. It is, it is continually a sign to everyone in the village and in the community, I am waiting for Judah to give me his grown son. Or he'll have nothing of it. And so he's going to go to the sheep shears at Timnah. Now, you might think, well, not a big deal. You shear sheep. It, was, it happened all the time. But they would have a festival involved with this. And the time of shearing of the sheep was a time of great licentiousness in the Canaanite culture. Because not only after you finish the hard work and dirty work of shearing the sheep, but this was a time of, of, of just widespread drunkenness and immorality. The Canaanite deities were seemingly uh, magically uh, kind of created this like fertility cult. And they kind of were aroused by the sexual activity of the people that would come and engage in these uh, cultic prostitutes during the time of the sheep shearing. So don't just think like, well, he's just taking care of his, his, his farm animals. Uh-uh. He's going to go to a place where it's all bad news. And guess who's with him? Hira the Adulamite, here's his good friend. So verse 13 was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So verse 14, So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that 
Shelah had grown up and had not been given to him as a wife. She has hatched a plan. It's corrupt. It's wrong. But it, is actually, uh, it, it actually works with the Canaanite culture. It actually fits in with how they practice leveret marriage. And that is this. That if, if there was no son that was given to this widow waiting for a son to, to come to marry so she could carry on her family line from her first husband, that a father-in-law could actually provide that service, so to speak. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute. Verse 15. And Judah, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. She covers her face. She's all wrapped up. She's not wearing the widow's garments, which she's been wearing for who knows how many years now. She disguises herself as a prostitute. This, this tells you how highly she thought of her father-in-law and of his moral state, that he would, with any opportunity... He would engage a prostitute. So she goes. This is extremely risky, extremely dangerous. And yet she does. She goes and she goes and places herself in a position where her father-in-law is going to pass her by. She's dressed as a prostitute. Well, verse 16, he makes his way to Timnah and there he finds her. Verse 16. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let it come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, well, what would you give me that you may come into me? And he said, therefore, well, I'll send you a goat from the flock. And she said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, all right, well, what, uh, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. What is going on here? Well, it actually works out as Tamar had planned. And once again, deception is introduced into the family of Abraham. There's been a pattern of lying and of deceit. And now Judah actually is deceived by his his actual daughter-in-law, the very one who he has failed to fulfill his pledge to. And there is a play on the word pledge that is going on here. You see, he has pledged his son to, to actually marry her, Sheila. But he has not fulfilled the pledge. She asked him, what kind of pledge are you going to give me that I can know that you're a upstanding, quote unquote, man of your word? And she and so uh, he goes, well, what, what do you want? He says, well, you said you're going to send my little sheep over here. Well, listen, you know what? Why don't you until you get that done? Why don't you give me that that signet? OK, this this signet seal would have been like a, it would have been like either like a piece of metal or ivory or bone that had carvings. And it would be hung around some cords on your neck, or it could be actually like a cylinder. And what they would use, you didn't like sign your name 
like Bubba on documents or anything like that. What you did is you took a seal and you'd impress that onto some soft clay. That seal, that was your mark, okay? And it, was, it was, had something to do with your family. It certainly always identified with you. So you had the cords, you had that seal, the signet seal, okay? And then you also have the staff. This staff would also have markings that would be unique to you, that people would know that this is you. And actually family leaders would have a staff. And it is possible that Judah actually has kind of the family leadership staff, okay? And she goes, you know, I'll take that, that cord, that seal, and uh, how about the, the staff? It's kind of the equivalent of saying, hmm, let's see, I'll take your driver's license, your social security card, and your credit card, okay? These are mine, all right? And when you send the goat, I'll give them back. That is about the equivalent of what is taking place here. But it's, Judah seemingly obviously has no morals, no scruples, doesn't care, He actually hands it all over to her. And she actually, as a result of this encounter, conceives. Man, bad stuff. Well, so we have after here, verse 18. So she went into her. She conceived by him, verse 19. Then she arose and departed, removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. All of this unbeknownst to Judah of what's really taking place. Well, Judah, he's a man of his word, right? Quality guy, does what he says. Well, verse 20, well, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, good thing you have friends like Hira, right? The Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, uh, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Aniam? And they said, what are you talking about? There's no temple prostitute here. Well, uh, so he returned to Judah. He said, you know, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Well, then Judah said, well, let her keep them. Otherwise, we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. I fulfilled my pledge. And so what's going on here, it's kind of like Judah's coming across like a reputable gentleman who just unwittingly left his credit card at the brothel. And he's like, okay, and he's trying to pay up. Like he's sending his friend to try to find this out and... And he's like, oh, there's, 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 they even say there's no pinnacle prostitute. I keep asking around and saying, well, Judah met, uh, you know, Judah's like, enough. I don't want it. I can keep all of that stuff. My signet, my cords, my staff. I don't care. I don't want it. I want to be done with this situation. It doesn't matter. Well, three months pass. I turn the page in my Bible. I'm at verse 24. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Listen to what he hears. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Okay, now that, that word, how they've translated it in the New American Standard, harlot, uh, could, it's probably better translated like she was sexually promiscuous. It doesn't mean necessarily that she was a prostitute. It's that she has actually engaged in some sort of immoral relationship. And what, what likely Judah's thinking is this. Tamar has committed adultery. Because after all, she's pledged to my son here, Sheila. She's an adulteress. And look just how quick he is to cast judgment. Look what he says. He hears about the news. And then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. 
tell you what. The sin in your own life are the ones that we are most opposed to in the lives of others. I mean, Judah is so guilty. But he hears of this. There's no, hey, what's going on here? Have we? Let's talk with her. No. Bring her out and let's kill her. But not just kill her, burn her. I mean, the worst death possible. And, you know, it's interesting. Don't you find that you get really angry with the sins that you see in others, but they're actually the same ones that you see in your own life? Well, that's Judah. He's immoral. Big time. Here's this about Tamar. Bring her out. Let's burn her. So we have this scene. Can you imagine what it would be like? All of the village would know. They'd be coming. Stake would be planted. Piles of wood would be camped. Branches, leaves. The word would be spreading like wildfire in the village of what is taking place here. Everyone would come and gather Tamar would be maybe being drugged out of her house, wherever she's at, with her, at her parents' place. People would be weeping, especially her friends and her family. And she comes out. She's got her widow's garments on, and she's holding some stuff in her hand, and she's dragging this stick that looks like a staff. And she makes her way out, and, and we actually see the scene here in verse 25. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And all these things that were given as a pledge become the great accusers of the judge. Verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he, not, and he did not have relations with her again. He sees that though what she did would be appropriate with the culture, there's no excuse with this. She is by far much more righteous than he is. You know, Judah had not only committed adultery. He failed to honor the pledge and the commitment that he made to give Sheila to her that she might bear a son to carry on the family line just the way it was supposed to be. And this event in Judah's life would have like shocked him, like being hit by electricity or like having a cooler full of ice water dumped over your shoulders. Just like, whoa, your whole system would be alerted and alarmed. That's what is taking place here. He's alerted just how far he has fallen. And there is a transformation that begins to take place. You know, as we move through the life of Joseph, we're going to encounter Judah again. And he is going to be a different man as a result of this event that takes place in his life that catches him in the midst of the grossness of his sin and alerts him. He is completely on the wrong track. You know, in people's lives, there are generally some events that take place where it's just like, bam, you were wrong and you're on the wrong track. God just brings to your attention. You are just about ready to go over the cliff. This was one of the events like that. And by the way, if, if God has stopped you. And perhaps even today as we are going through this passage, you've been alerted to wickedness in your life. 
But it could be from a, a friend, a classmate, um, someone you work with, a pastor. When they come and they tell you, watch out, this is a warning. You are about ready to experience extreme perishing. Now is your time of opportunity. Now is a day of salvation. Turn. Well, that's what this event was like in the life of Judah. As we keep making our way through the book of Genesis in the weeks to come, look and see if you don't see a changed man. Well, to pick up our story, Tamar is pregnant. And she is not going to give birth to one child. She's giving birth to twins. Verse 27. It came about at that time she was giving birth and that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth that one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on that hand saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. And then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And so he named she, he was named Perez, which actually means breach or the one who breaks through. OK. And afterwards, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zara, which means scarlet. Now, I tell all of this story and we go through Genesis 38 because we need to hear the lesson this chapter teaches It teaches us that no matter how bad we have been or are, God's purposes will not be thwarted. And he can still use you despite the wickedness of your past. And he can still use me. Um, When you saw the word Perez, some of you are like, you know, I've, I've heard that before. And indeed, if you've ever started reading the New Testament, so you have. You know, Perez... Perez is in the line, and from his line comes a king, the most famous king of all of Israel, King David. And from King David comes Messiah, King Jesus. And when you start reading the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, did you know that you're going to find Judah, Tamar, Perez, and Zerah? They are all mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. That is amazing grace. It is to show you that God, despite the wickedness of man, can achieve and accomplish his his righteous, perfect purposes. And it is so interesting when you look at the genealogy. It It was never customary to ever mention the females in genealogies. And yet Jesus' genealogy mentions five. There's Mary and there are four others. But do you know who the first woman is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus? Tamar. The woman that we just looked at today. It's, it's very interesting that in the lineage of Jesus, apart from Mary, you know those four females that are mentioned? They're all outsiders to Israel. There's Tamar. She was a Canaanite. There is Rahab. She was a Canaanite. There was Ruth. Remember Ruth? She was a Moabite. And then there was Bathsheba. She was a Hittite. And furthermore, not only do they come from the Gentiles, the people outside of the Jewish faith, but they also, they, their situation of how they get married and how they actually get in the line of Jesus is, could potentially be a rather scandalous. Tamar, she played the harlot to conceive Perez. Rahab, do you know her occupation before coming to faith in the one true God? Prostitution. 
Ruth, a childless widow who goes to a threshing floor in darkness to ask Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba had an adulterous relationship with King David. And yet all of these women are found in the line of Jesus. When we talk about Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming man, Jesus came into this line. Jesus entered into humanity and perhaps humanity even at its worst. I mean, I would think like, let's have Messiah come through Joseph because Joseph, he's like decent and upstanding. God wants to highlight he's a God of redemption. And he steps in even in the midst of the wickedness and the evil of mankind to bring about his holy and his perfect purposes. The depravity of man will not stop the purposes of God. And the people of Israel, when they would experience wickedness throughout the ranks, they would keep going back and look at this chapter and the life of Joseph, and they would see God's purposes will not be thwarted. And do you know that Jesus, the Messiah, he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. His kingship comes from the line of Judah. You know what that is? That is amazing grace. And you, me, no matter what you have done, all of the sin of your life, thoughts, actions, words, attitudes, we have an opportunity to experience the amazing grace of God, and it is always found in Christ. We need to recognize our own sin, our shortcomings, the wages of sin is death. We have to realize we have to realize that God has sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, through this line. And we repent, we turn of our sin, we turn away from it, and we receive Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. And when we do, we experience His life. We experience redemption, where God takes a life caught up in sin and turns it into a life caught up with the Savior. You see, redemption is God's specialty. And if you're asking the question, can God really work through, do his good through a people who are so bad? The answer to that question is absolutely to those who have become yielded to him and those who are united with Christ. Redemption is God's specialty. Christ came. The son of man did not come into the world. He didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. And the Bible is picture after picture of redemption. You see it here in Judah's life. You remember those sons of Korah? Well, he apparently had some children that eventually went on to become the lead temple singers. In fact, they wrote some of the psalms that are in the scripture. Uh, you look at uh, Peter and all the apostles. Redemption. You could look at a Christ hater named Saul who becomes Paul. His life is drastically changed. What's going on? God redeems lost people, people lost in sin. You see it in me. You see it in you. This is the story of every person who is a part of our church. God does his saving work. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And when we see depravity run deep, know this. God's grace runs even deeper. And Judah and his family and what takes place gives us a picture of what that begins to look like. Let's pray. Lord, we have encountered perhaps one of the most difficult chapters that you have ever written in the scripture. And yet, 
we approach you as holy. And we know that you have given us your word to completely do your purposes in our lives. To make us aware of our own sinfulness. To see our need for the Savior. And to draw us to yourself. To realize that you're a holy God and that you do punish sin. And yet you have punished sin in him who knew no sin and yet became sin on our behalf in Jesus. And it's because of him that we're here today to worship. And if their Lord is someone who has come today who's never put their faith and trust in him, would they with me just pray, Lord, you know about my sin and my failures and shortcomings. Today I, I see, finally, I turn from my sin and I trust Jesus as my true Savior. And Lord, I know from what I've heard that you change lives and transform them from the inside out. Would you do so in me for your glory? And Lord, would all of us rejoice in you, a God of salvation? Would we treat you as holy and realize that you're seeking to accomplish your holy purpose in each one of our lives? For your glory, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. At this time, we do have, as Mike Harden's going to make his way, Mike is the head of our missions committee, and he's got a special uh, little interview that he would like to do with uh, our missionaries, the Matthews. So, Mike, let me get you. There you go. Good morning. For uh, a lot of you guys probably know Doug and Melissa Matthews, but just as a brief introduction for those of you who don't, Doug and Melissa left uh, our congregation about nine months ago to be missionaries in Singapore. Doug is a, was a tenured professor in neuroscience at Baylor, gave up his position, and has gone to teach psychology in Singapore, where he makes relationships with students and uh, shares the gospel. He's also head of uh, Global Banjara Baptist Ministries, which is a ministry that's ongoing among the Banjara people in India. Srinivas they partner with, an Indian pastor, and Srinivas is actually going to be here in a few weeks. Uh, he'll be here Wednesday, April 28th in the evening. If you guys aren't busy on that evening, want to be here and, and meet Srinivas and hear about the ministry, you're welcome to come. We're also going to host him at our house on the Friday after that. We'll be sending out an email reminder about that. Now, they have three daughters, Taylor, who's about 15, Drew's 13, and Sadie is nine, and you may know that Drew has type 1 diabetes, so she's on insulin and has made that transition to being overseas and doing that. You may not know that Taylor, their oldest daughter, was just diagnosed with diabetes as well about a month, a month and a half ago, was in the hospital and then released. So you can imagine how stressful that was and how it is being in another culture and having to go through it as well. Now, um, you guys have probably been to the office and have met Ruth in the office before. She is an amazing lady, can do about anything, and she has developed this video uh, link that we have with them this morning. I think it's just about time to hook up with them. Go ahead and fire up that link and see if we can, we can pull them in here. Wow, Ruth, good job, man. <laughs> hey, Matthews, good morning. How are you guys? How you doing? Hey, it's Sunday morning here. Uh, it's probably Sunday night there in Singapore. What time is it right there? Well, I want to remind you guys, you are in front of the entire congregation right now. So no yawning. You know, I know it's late, but be up to your best behavior, okay? Now, I know you've been there about nine months, and if you've made it through the big transition, how's it going? Well, what's been a highlight for you guys so far? Well, what's been the most difficult thing so far? 
<laughs> We've only got like four minutes now. <laughs> so...